in the Myers home, we love competition. We manage to turn just about anything into a competition in which we seek to lovingly outdo one another. And so, of course, we also love sports. We love watching sports. We love coaching sports, talking about sports, and, of course, playing sports. We actually often talk to one another with athletic slogans. One of my boys reminded me of a few of them just this morning. Winners do more, we'll say, to motivate one another. Or winners train, losers complain. The real workout starts when you want to quit. It's a good one. And then my favorite, my mom warms up with your max. <laughs> In fact, I was also reminded <laughs> how much we love sports this morning because at this particular time of year, um, one of my boys, when I come in early to look over my sermon and to pray and to get ready, he comes into my office and he uses the whiteboard to write down all of the football games that are taking place and then writes out his predictions. So we do talk about athletics, we talk about sports quite a bit in the Myers household, which makes the topic today of particular interest to me. It is no secret that the Apostle Paul was a sports fan. He loved sports, probably played sports, but he obviously understood sports. By the time Paul was born, the annual Greek and then Roman Olympics had been taking place for centuries, and some have even speculated that Paul, who was a tent maker by trade, made tents for the visiting athletes who required them each year at the games. It is clear that Paul loved and understood sports because of his frequent use of athletic metaphors. He uses them over and over again, including in our text today. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Paul challenges Christians to live the Christian life like a runner running to win a prize. Then, in verse 25, he admires a successful athlete's exercise of self-control. And then in verse 26, he uses a boxing metaphor. Over in Galatians 2.2, Paul compares himself to a long-distance runner. And in Ephesians 6.12, Paul likens the Christian life to a wrestling match. So some of you thought I was joking when I said that Paul was obviously a sports fan, but he clearly was. And he understood athletics. So in our text today, Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, Paul again he uses a sports metaphor, and it is very helpful, even for those of you who don't like or understand sports. So even if you think a touchdown is worth five points, this sermon is for you. So here's our game plan this morning. You like that? We're going to think with Paul athletically about the Christian life. This is what he's doing. 
So we are going to think with Paul athletically about the Christian life. We're going to consider the runner, the race, and the reward because Paul is going to mention all three. Paul and other Christians are runners. The Christian life is a race and heaven is the reward. So those will be the headings that we are going to work under. And Paul has some profound insights for us. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, send your Holy Spirit to help us now. We need help understanding your word, your will. We need help applying your word, your will. We know our minds will be dark and our hearts cold without you. So give us light and heat, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, which if you are using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 637. Let me read the text in its entirety one more time before we begin. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. This is the word of God. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Amen. So take up your Bibles. And look at this little paragraph with me. In verses 12 through 14, Paul is telling the Philippians how he thinks about the Christian life. And then in verses 15 and 16, he calls or exhorts the Philippians to follow his example and think the same way. Verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. In other words, if you are a mature adult, or if you want to be a mature adult, then this is how you need to think about your life. That's what Paul is saying. If you want to be a mature adult, or if you are and consider yourself to be a mature adult, then this is how, Paul says, you need to think about your life. Paul is saying, if you want to act like an adult, if you want to grow up, if you want to leave childish ways behind you, this is how you are going to need to think. That's what Paul is saying in verses 15 and 16. So let's go back to verses 12 through 14 
and understand how Paul wants us to think about this life. And of course, don't forget, Paul is not just writing his own thoughts here. He's writing God's thoughts. These aren't just Paul's words. These are God's words. He is an inspired author of Scripture. So as Paul writes, God writes. He is a mouthpiece of God. He is an apostle, a prophet. So this is how God wants you to think about your life. So let's look at the runner. You are like a runner, Paul says. That's the first thing. Paul is the runner in this metaphor, and here's what he says in the first part of verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. So he's starting with a clarification. As a runner, Paul wants us to know that he hasn't crossed the finish line yet. He hasn't finished the race yet. He hasn't arrived. Uh, To understand what the this is that he has not already obtained, we just need to go back and read the couple verses right before. Look at verses 10 and 11. That I may know him, it's Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul, we know, based on those two verses, was looking forward to dying. Paul was looking forward to dying, being resurrected, and seeing Jesus face to face. He was looking forward to the knowledge of God that he would have in heaven. He was looking forward to the sinless perfection he would have in heaven. And then in verse 12, he's reminding his readers, I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived, Paul is saying. I haven't crossed that finish line. I'm not perfect He reiterates this in verse 13 when he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. And Paul probably made this clarification because of a false teaching called perfectionism. Some of you have heard this teaching. It's a false teaching. It is the belief that a Christian can, in this life, become perfect. I've actually read and heard Christians say that it had been years since they last sinned. So there were probably some false teachers in Philippi, most likely the Judaizers, and they were telling Christians that they could become perfect in this life if, in addition to their faith in Jesus, they strictly observed the Old Testament ceremonial law. That's probably the kind of teaching that was at least going around. And many Christians had and many Christians have believed that, but not Paul. There's a story I heard this week of a preacher 
who was preaching a sermon during which he told his congregation that he had reached a state of sinless perfection. And after the service, one of the church members who was listening came up and asked him, do you mind if I ask your wife if you have reached a state of sinless perfection? So, believers here this morning, you should be glad to hear Paul say that he has not arrived. This should be encouraging to you. Because if you, if you had just read what, and your eyes can glance at it now, if you had just read what Paul said in verses 8 through 9 about his love for God and his desire to be with God, you may be discouraged when you compare Paul's maturity to your own. But Paul wants his readers to know that he is one of them. He struggles. He sins. Paul was not where he wanted to be. And it's good for discouraged Christians to hear that. Because as time goes on, a mature Christian actually believes they are more sinful than they previously realized. So it's encouraging to hear Paul say, I have not obtained this. I am not perfect. I haven't crossed the finish line. I have not arrived. I am not there yet. I mean, can you imagine if I stood here and reported to you that I had not sinned in three years. After you you laughed, after you laughed, if you actually believed that, you would end up deeply discouraged. Because as you grow, you become more and more aware of your own sinfulness. It's a deeply discouraging false doctrine. Now, unbelievers who are here this morning, it is also good for you to hear that perfection in this life, even for Christians, does not exist. Because some of you have met Christians who you consider to be hypocrites because they sinned against you. And some of them sinned against you terribly. Well, Christians do not believe they are perfect. Christians should not communicate that they believe they are perfect or that they even can be perfect in this life. The church is actually, Christians believe, filled with sinners. The sinners, we don't think, are out there. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian and you are not a believer, we do not think the difference between you and us is that you are a sinner and we are not. The church is filled to the brim and overflowing with sinners. Here's the difference. The church truly is filled with repentant sinners. But that is the only difference. So that's the runner. That is Paul. And that is us. We are runners in a race. 
Paul wants us to think this way. And we have not yet crossed the finish line. We have not yet obtained what we are after. We are not yet perfect. So let's read on now about the race itself. Look at verse 14 with me. Here is Paul's description of the race itself. I, Paul says, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let me read it again. Paul says, I press on. That is Paul running. I press on toward the goal for the prize. That's the finish line. And then here is his description of the actual race. Of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. So did you hear that? Paul is describing the race of the Christian life as the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is a good summary of the Christian life. Christian, you have received the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Christian, you have received, literally, this means a call to come up. Many of you can remember when you had not been called up yet. You can remember a day when you did not know God, you did not love God. And you were indifferent to God. And then God called you. His call is unlike any other call. Theologians call it the effectual call. The irresistible call. When somebody else calls you, you can answer or not answer. When someone else calls and tells you something, you can believe or not believe. When God calls you like this, you answer. When God calls you like this, you respond. When God calls you like this, you believe. And if you're a Christian, there was a day when God called you. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, God called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God, according to Galatians 1.15, called you by his grace. He, according to Romans 8.30, he predestined you and then he called you and then he justified you and then he will glorify you. That means that before he created the earth, he decided that he was going to call you. And then at some point in time in your life, he called you. You responded in faith. He justified you and he will glorify you. Keeping up with the metaphor, think of it this way. The upward call of God was the starter pistol for Paul in the race. As you run the race of the Christian life, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus was the starter pistol for you. So that's the runner. 
And that's the race. Paul is running. We are running and we have not yet crossed the finish line. And the race we are running is the Christian life. We are responding to the upward call of God. And now third, let's look at the reward. Look again at verse 14 with me. Listen for the reward. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This tells us that there is a goal in the Christian life. There is a goal in the Christian life. There is a finish line. The goal, listen, the goal of the Christian life is to persevere in your faith. That's running the race. Not to be faithful for a while. To trust God for a few years and then no longer trust God. The goal of the Christian life is to persevere in your faith. Listen to what Paul says at the very end of his life. At the very end of his life. In 2 Timothy 4, 6 and 7. To Timothy he writes, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Do you hear what the goal is? Do you hear what finishing the race is? Paul says, I have kept the faith. And then Paul says in our text, for those who persevere, those who reach the goal, for those who keep the faith, there is a prize. I press on, Paul said, toward the goal for the prize. He calls it a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8. He calls it an imperishable wreath, which is reference to the perishable wreath that was given out in the Olympic Games. He calls it that imperishable wreath in 1 Corinthians 9.25. James calls it the crown of life. There is a prize. So think about this with me. Think about this prize. Ultimately, what is the prize for a Christian, it's Jesus. This is really important. Ultimately, what is the prize for a Christian? It's Jesus. Jesus is the prize. Hasn't Paul made it clear that that is what he wants? That is who he wants more than anything. Just in this letter, he said to live is Christ, to die is gain in Philippians 1.21. In other words, to live is Christ. My whole life is about Christ. And to die, so what happens when Paul dies? What does he take with him from this life? Answer? Nothing. So Paul says in that moment, when I lose everything in this life, 
success, money, possessions, accomplishments, family, friends, church, everything. In that moment, when I lose everything in this life and all I get is Christ, Paul says, gain. He says, that's a good deal. I take it every time. That's a great exchange. That's a great trade. All Paul wants is Jesus. He wants more than anything. He told us in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, to know Jesus and see him face to face. He wants God more than anything. I love the way the psalmist put this in Psalm 73, 25 through 26. Whom have I in heaven but you, God? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength and the portion of my heart forever. So for the Christian, God is the great reward. God is the reward. God is the prize. Heaven is great because God is there. If everything else or anything else as good as there, but God is not there, it is hell. What is so great about heaven is the presence of God. We have not come to Jesus to get money or power or success or respect or possessions. We have come to Jesus to get God. So there is a summary of Paul's metaphor. Paul is running and he wants us to know that he has not yet crossed the finish line. The race that he is running is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he is after a reward, the prize of seeing Jesus face to face. That's his metaphor. Now. There is something else very important here. And it is actually the main point that Paul is making. And so we will spend the rest of our time on this. This is what I would want to leave with you because I believe this is what Paul wants to leave with us. And here it is. Press on. That's Paul's application. Think about your life in this way. If you are mature or want to be mature, Paul says. And here is the most important thing that Paul is saying as you think about your life as this race that you are running. Paul is saying you, Christian, must press on. In order to cross the finish line and receive the reward of eternal life with Jesus, you must press on. You must fight. You must battle. You must work. Now, a lot of good Christians are afraid of talking like this because we're afraid it undermines the grace of God. It does not. 
Let me say this application again. Christian, in order to cross the finish line and receive the reward of eternal life with Jesus, you must press on. You must battle. You must go to war spiritually. You must fight. You must work and work and work. Now let me make a very important clarification. I am not saying and Paul is not saying that you are saved by your works. You are saved by faith alone. But listen, real faith works. Real faith presses on. So you know the danger here. The danger is taking true doctrine like I am saved by faith alone and taking that truth so far that it isn't even truth anymore. And it works like this. I'm a Christian and there's nothing that anyone can say about that because I, 15 years ago, said a prayer. And I said yes to Jesus or I invited him in my heart. I went forward at the summer camp. I cried tears. Whatever it is, there was this moment in time and you're hanging everything on it. You've heard rightly you're saved by faith alone. But you are misunderstanding that if that faith that you claim to have put in Jesus, if that is not producing a fight in you and a war in you and a battle in you and hard work in you, listen, it isn't faith. It never was faith. Whatever it was, it is not the kind of faith that will justify you before God. Real faith presses on. Or as James put it, faith without works is dead faith. What's he saying? It's not faith. Paul is telling us, runners in this race who want to cross the finish line, who want the prize of eternal life with Jesus, don't you dare let go and let God. Paul says, take hold and press on. Paul says it twice in verse 12 and verse 14. That's why it's very clear that this is the most important point he's trying to get across. Look with me. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Then verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here's what we're learning. Not everyone wins. Not everyone wins. Not everyone who calls themselves a Christian gets the prize. Everyone doesn't get a trophy. 
Just because we call ourselves a Christian does not mean we will get a prize, but only those, Paul is saying, only those who through faith persevere, only those who press on in order to persevere. It won't just happen. In order to persevere in your faith, you will need to press on. You will need to fight. You will need to work hard. He said earlier in this very letter, in chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation with, remember the fear and trembling. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, where he is using the athletic metaphor again, he says, don't just run, run to get the prize. Don't just run, run to win. You hear the athletic metaphor? Play sports, not to just play sports. Every good athlete knows this. You play sports, why? To win. When he talks about the Christian life, Paul says, run to get the prize. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Some of you may find this silly but this really is my problem with sports that don't keep scores and give trophies for participation. This is the problem. Sports that don't keep score and give out trophies for participation cease to be metaphors for the Christian life. That's the problem. Participation trophies are the athletic version of universalism. Everyone's saved. Everyone's good. Doesn't matter. Congratulations for existing. <laughs> really, that is not worth celebrating. You have to press on. You have to. James says, remain steadfast under trial. James says it that way. You have to stand the test. James says, in order to receive the crown, you have to, according to the author of Hebrews, lay aside every weight and run with endurance. You have to, as Paul says elsewhere, fight the good fight of the faith. This is why Paul uses the athletic metaphor here. In order to succeed athletically, you must work hard. Every athlete knows this. Concentrated and determined effort is absolutely essential. Which is why you have heard stories of great athletes and how hard all of them, what? Worked. So let me give you a personal illustration of this. I asked his permission. My son Brady said that I could share this today. My son, Brady, he's 13 years old, and he is a gifted basketball shooter. His coach is here. His coach would say the same thing. He's a gifted basketball shooter. And when you watch Brady 
shoot a basketball, especially when you watch Brady get into a rhythm shooting the basketball, it really is beautiful. It's, it's a thing of beauty to watch. His, his shoulders and his, his legs are, are balanced and his, his, his shooting elbow is in and his, his eyes are fastened to the rim. His follow-through is perfect, a snap of the wrist, good rotation, and he's oblivious when he gets in that zone of anything else that is going on around him. And sometimes the shot is so beautiful... Actually, often I've seen Brady do this. The basketball will hit just the right spot of the net with the perfect amount of rotation so that the backspin sort of flicks the net up and through and over the rim and just hangs there as a testimony of the magic that just happened. I sound like LeVar Ball right now. (laughs) I recognize that. But it is, it is, it is, it is beautiful. Now, here's the point. Brady is gifted when it comes to his basketball shot. But do you know how much hard work it takes for him to shoot like that? For years, day in, day out, rain or shine, What is Brady doing in our driveway? Can you guess? He's shooting baskets. Over and over and over again. So that he can, Lord willing, succeed athletically. In order to succeed spiritually, you must work hard. That's Paul's point. Concentrated and determined effort is absolutely essential. You cannot cruise into heaven. It is hard work. The race is grueling. It is a fight, Paul says. It is a war, Paul says. And if you're going to reach the goal of the prize, you will have to press on. Okay, now... One last insight from Paul before our conclusion, and it's in verse 13. So look with me at verse 13. In verse 13, Paul gives us a, a, key, a sort of key to pressing on in the faith. Kind of like this is, this is a key element to pressing on in your faith. You've got to do that. You've got to learn to do this and get really good at it. If you're going to be able to work hard and press on in your faith. And here's what he says. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Christian. You need to learn how to do this. This is difficult for me. I think about what this means. I think about other scripture that communicates the same thought, the same truth. This is difficult. There are two important elements there, aren't there? Number one, straining forward to what lies ahead. Number two, forgetting what lies behind. 
That may sound simple to some of you. It is not. And it is Paul saying it is absolutely essential for the Christian who wants to fight. For the Christian who wants to press on, to reach the goal, to obtain the prize. So first he says, if we're going to press on and reach our goal, if we're going to win the prize, we must strain forward. It's the runner again, isn't it? You picture the runner at the end of the race, especially straining for the tape. Paul says we must strain forward to what lies ahead. And what is it that lies ahead? Jesus. Hebrews 12 says the same thing. We keep our eyes fixed on the author and the perfecter of our faith. The way Brady looks at the rim when he's shooting is how we look at Jesus in the Christian life. We don't take our eyes off. Everything else is a distraction. Our focus is on Jesus. We are straining forward to Jesus. And now most of you know this. But we cannot look forward and backward at the same time. You can't do it physically. You can't do it spiritually. The principle Paul is making here. You can't look forward and backward at the same time. It's one or the other. So Paul says, in addition to straining forward to what lies ahead, what else does he say you have to do? Forget what lies behind. So here's the question. What is it that lies behind that I'm supposed to forget? Now I think it's just about everything. Just about everything. If you're going to press on toward Jesus and cross the finish line, I know many of you want to. If you are going to do that, you will need to learn how to forget. You'll need to learn how to forget past hurts. Unless you become bitter, resentful, angry. How many of you right now are bitter? You're resentful. You're angry with someone, with God, because you haven't yet been able to forget what lies behind. We'll have to commit ourselves to learning how to forget past hurts. Not only past hurts, past wrongs. How many of you keep a record of wrongs? You have a tally that you can bring up when necessary. Someone does something to you and you think to yourself or you even say out loud, here we go again. We'll have to forget past wrongs, real and supposed. Sometimes they're not even real wrongs. Maybe we didn't bring them up. Maybe we didn't say anything. They were figments of our imagination. But if we're going to strain to what lies ahead, we will have to forget past wrongs, real or supposed. We'll have to learn how to forget past failures. 
all of us have history full, don't we? Of failures. Failed here, failed there. Didn't do this right. Didn't do that right. Didn't give God glory here. Didn't do what I should have done there. Didn't say the right thing here. Made the wrong decision there. Had the wrong thoughts there. Failure after failure after failure. And it's very easy for us to become fixated on those past failures in a way that we have no confidence in Christ and we don't strain forward to what lies ahead. So we cannot waste our time thinking about these past hurts or these past wrongs or these past failures or even your past successes. Some of you need to stop thinking and remembering your past successes. Congratulations. There, you have your congratulations. You don't need any more. You don't need any more pats on the back. You only did it anyway by the grace of God in you. But if we hang our hat on, if we place our confidence where we have been successful in the past, this also will keep us from trusting Jesus. We're trusting ourselves. So we've got to forget what lies behind. Past hurts, past wrongs, past failures, even past successes. Which of those is a hang up for you? I'm not saying this is simple. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not even saying that I do this well. But we must commit to learning how to forget what lies behind. And some of you at this point You just aren't even interested in forgetting what lies behind. You want to hold on to the past. You enjoy holding on to the past. And that's wrong. And it's not what Paul is exhorting you to do. As far as I can tell, there is really one thing That God tells us to remember over and over again and to never forget. And it is his good works toward us. Everything else. I want to forget. In conclusion. So that we don't forget the gospel. Remember, though you have been called to fight To work hard. It is not. Let me say it again. It is not by this hard work. That you are saved. We are saved by grace. And not by works. We do strive. But we strive by grace. And we strive from grace. It is all of grace. We want to grow. But we as Christians don't want to grow so that God will love and accept us. We want to grow because God has loved us and accepted us. And that's very different. We do not want to grow so that God will love us. We want to grow because God loves us. 
because we have been changed and motivated by the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the crucial truth that Paul actually mentioned, sort of hidden in the text that we read, that it is all of grace. We glossed over it in verse 12, where Paul said, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. And now here it is, the reason. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So there he is. Pressing on. Because Christ has taken hold of him. God's the beginning, God's the middle, God's the end. Paul said, Christ Jesus had made me his own. The word literally means lay hold of. Paul says, Jesus has laid hold of me or taken hold of me or grasped or apprehended or arrested. Paul is saying that Jesus had apprehended him. Jesus had arrested him. A Christian is someone who has been apprehended by Christ. Our security as Christians is not based on how well we do, but on our union with Christ alone. So believers... Some ending questions. Is God revealing to you an apathetic attitude toward your Christian life? Have you become passive in your sanctification? Have you become undisciplined in your Bible reading? Do your prayers treat God like some sort of vending machine? Is your witnessing half-hearted? Does your attitude towards maturing in Christ need adjustment? Are you working hard at pursuing Christ? Knowing Christ? Being like Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to help us understand your word. And God, I ask that you would now take the truth of your word and plant it deeply in our hearts and in our minds. Help us even more to grasp the truth of your word And change us, Lord. Will you, we pray, make us more like your son, Jesus? Will you use this preaching of your word to get us thinking right about our life? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.